Thanks for reading our scripture this morning, Jeff. And by the way, if you ever wake up on a Sunday morning and you wonder to yourself, can I get up and around to get to church on time? The answer is yes, you did it uh, this morning, one hour earlier than usual. So thanks for being here uh, on Spring Forward. And um, I know we've got some folks out on Spring Break. Glad to have you uh, here worshiping with us this Sunday. If you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, Uh, We started this series going through the season of Lent leading up to Easter, looking at what historically have been known as the seven deadly sins. And we uh, talked about why we are in this series. And then John preached on gluttony at Ash Wednesday. I preached on uh, vainglory last Sunday. Um, And as we get ready to look at, I guess, our sin of the day, if you can call it that, um, I'm reminded of a moment when I was a sophomore in college Uh, So there was a book that came out, it was called The Reason for God by a pastor in New York named Tim Keller, and I remember reading that book, and this was a time in my life when I had a lot of doubts, I had a lot of questions, and that was a book that really helped um, to cement for me that there really are good reasons, not just to believe that God exists, but that he really has revealed himself uh, in the person of Jesus. And so that book was very helpful to me. It was helpful to one of my friends. And at that time, the, the author, Tim Keller, was actually visiting different university campuses talking about his book. And so we had the idea, what if we could bring him to our college? And so my friend and I, we went to go meet with the chaplain of our college to present this idea, see if he could help make this happen. And And I remember this guy was in his 60s. He had had his own kind of distinguished ministry career. And we met with him sitting out on this picnic table right outside of the chaplain's office. And and I remember when we presented this idea, I remember the look on his face. And I remember the measured response that he gave. As he said, well, you know, I I actually know this author. I've I've met him before. You know, I actually used to, to pastor a church in New York City in Manhattan as well. It was a very vibrant at church too. He said, you know, I've spoken about, I've preached on and, and talked about questions of faith. And he said, you know, I think that maybe some of what I've said about faith would have had a more popular appeal too, if I had been, you know, less committed to my high rigorous academic standards. And, you know, it was interesting for me as a 20-year-old, kind of a a new Christian, you're kind of idealistic. You think to yourself, gosh, if anybody is in ministry or if they've been doing this for a number of years, surely, you know, ego is kind of out of the equation. They're just doing this because they want to advance the the kingdom of God. But as a a college student, it was was just so plain um, that he was reacting to this out of envy. And it was unappealing. It was unattractive. And surely I think all of us can, can recognize when we see envy in other people, we don't like that. We're not drawn uh, to that. And, and yet over the years, I've come to recognize and to realize you absolutely can be going about, you know, ostensibly God's work. You could be engaged in, in pastoral ministry and still struggle with, with the motivation of envy. You can be a longtime follower of Jesus. You could have followed Jesus for years and still struggle with envy. And of course, envy is a a vice that that takes hold of of really every single human heart at different times and in different ways, and it's deadly and it's destructive. And so we're going to be looking at envy together this morning using this classic story of the, the relationship between Saul and David. And as we look at this story, I want us to ask four questions 
questions that really we're going to um, ask really with each of these different sins. You're going to notice this is somewhat of a familiar outline. First, the definition. What is envy? Let's be clear about that. Secondly, how do we recognize when envy is at work within our hearts? You know, one of the things we said about these seven deadly sins is they're not external behaviors. They're motivations. They're desires uh, that, that, that are operating at a heart level. You can't see them. And so it's really important uh, for us with each of these deadly sins, but particularly with envy, to learn how do we recognize, how do we tell uh, when we are dealing with the sickness of envy? What are its symptoms? And then thirdly, why is it so deadly? And again, we're asking that for each of these sins because part of what we want to do is we want to remove some of the luster, some of the allure. You know, each of these seven deadly sins, they, they promise a paradise of sorts here and now, and they fail to provide what they promise. So we want to help uh, all of us to just see why is, is envy so deadly and destructive? And then finally, how do we uproot it? Grounded in the grace of Jesus for us, how can we uproot it so that we can walk more in the abundant life that God has for us in Christ? So there's our outline, so let's walk through those four questions together. So first, what is envy? And you know, the best definition that I have come across for envy comes from a lady named Rebecca DeYoung. She says, envy is feeling bitter when others have it better. Feeling bitter when others have it better. That's pretty simple, pretty memorable definition. And of course, there are two parts to that definition, right? There's, there's the comparison I see somebody else has it better. And then there's the resentment. I feel bitter about the fact that they do have it better. So there's a comparison and there's the resentment. The two are very much interconnected, but I want to distinguish them to help us uh, understand what envy is. So look back at this story. Verse 8, we first see the comparison. We're told that Saul... Um, Saul, who has heard these women singing these praise songs, these songs of admiration um, that they ascribed to David, ten thousands, that he has killed ten thousands of enemies, but to me, Saul, they have ascribed only thousands. Do you see that? The comparison there is taking place. Now, let's be clear here. Don't overlook the fact that Saul is a uniquely blessed and gifted human being. I mean, just, just think about the fact, I mean, how many people have women who are singing songs of admiration about them? Probably not many people have that. And here are these folks that are singing about Saul and his military triumphs. Saul is somebody who has this very imposing physical stature. That's why he was chosen as king. People looked and said, that guy looks like a king. He should be king. So he's famous. He's, he's attractive. He's been successful as a military leader for Israel. And oh, by the way, he's the king. Anybody remember that Mel Brooks line, it's good to be the king? It's good. He's, he's, he's wealthy. He's powerful from a worldly point of view. I mean, this guy Saul, he's got everything that somebody could want, but he's not satisfied in it, is he? And he's unable to appreciate and to enjoy all of the blessings and accomplishments and gifts that God has given him because he is struck with envy. So it starts with this comparison as he compares what people are saying about David to what they are saying about him. 
But let's be very clear that comparison itself is not envy. There's, there's some aspect of comparison that, that's necessary just to be able to really make sense of life and to be able to function within it. Any of you who work in, in various different business world, uh, at, you know, environments, right, you, you have to, to some degree, kind of compare uh, what you are doing with what your competitors are doing or, or where you sort of fit within your particular uh, market. Some comparison is necessary even just to kind of make sense of who we are and what are my gifts and my abilities and, and, and who am I and how do I fit within the world. In fact, comparison actually is necessary, I would suggest, to grow as a follower of Jesus. What do I mean? Well, if you're reading through the Gospels, for instance, and you happen to notice, huh, Jesus, in spite of how busy he is, he stops. He takes time to pay attention to people and their problems. Or Jesus is so compassionate in the way that he heals and cares for people in their needs, or gosh, look at the way that he responded to that question with such wisdom and insight from Scripture, or look at the way Jesus, with such courage at cost to himself, is willing to obey his Father's will. If you read through the Gospels and you start to think to yourself, wait a minute, Jesus is far gentler than I am. Jesus is far wiser than I am. Jesus is more loving than I am. He's more committed to obeying his father than I am. That's a form of comparison, isn't it? But if that comparison doesn't lead to bitterness or resentment towards Jesus, but instead it leads to zeal, it leads to this joyful desire to say, I want to become more like Jesus. I see the difference between us and I want to become more like him. Or frankly, if you look at people who follow Jesus for longer than you have and you see more of these Christ-like qualities in their life and you say, I want to become more like them in the way they follow Jesus, that's not bad, is it? That's actually a good thing. So comparison in and of itself is not inherently bad. The problem is when the comparison leads to the resentment. When it leads to the bitterness, they have it better, and that makes me feel bitter. Uh, look, what, look what Rebecca D. Young uh, says about envy. I find this really helpful. Uh, she says, the envier uh, feels bitter. I think this is on another slide, Sam, if we can go to that. The envier feels bitter uh, not just because the other person is better. Rather, she chafes, this is a couple forward, Sam, if you've got it up there. She chafes at the way the other's superiority makes her feel her own lack and inferiority more acutely. Let me, let me explain that uh, more. So, so when we envy somebody, what makes us feel bad is actually not that we just want more of that good thing that they have. Right, so if you look and say somebody, they've got, they've got this nicer home than I do, you might think to yourself, I want that nicer home, or I want to go on that nicer vacation, or I want to look more that way. You think it's the, the good quality that you are wanting more of. That's not really the issue. With, with envy, um, you're not so much interested in wanting more of that good quality. What you don't like, what you resent, is the way that it makes you feel for this person to be outshining you makes you feel bad about yourself, makes you feel inferior, makes you question your own sense of self-worth. It kind of amplifies and exposes that. That's what we don't like. That's what we resent in the comparison, the way in which it, it makes us feel um, badly about ourselves when we make that comparison. 
So we're not so much concerned with the, the gift or quality as we're um, embittered by our feeling of inferiority. Uh, one way to think about envy, I found this helpful. A friend of mine gave this to me. He said, you know, it's almost the difference between golf and tennis. So he said in golf, right, you can go play golf, not if you're in the players' championship and you're, you know, professionally competing. You've got to, to compete to make money. But if you're just out recreationally playing golf, you could be playing with people who are way better than you are but you could still have a really good time, right? Because you could be playing your own ball. You could be working on developing your own game, trying to improve your own score, regardless of how they're playing. Um, but tennis is different. Tennis, you only succeed if the person on the other side of the net fails, right? It's, an, it's inherently um, competitive. And, and what we resent in envy um, is the way that it makes us feel when somebody else seems to be outshining us. And particularly, by the way, in an area that we really care about, maybe in something that we really pride ourselves in. Here's the last part of the definition of envy is that we tend to target our envy towards the people um, of whom we would, we would most be likely to compare ourselves or in whose lives we could picture ourselves. So I do not envy Luka Doncic uh, when he scores 50 points and has a triple-double for the Mavericks because long ago I realized I was not going to be a great NBA basketball player, not in the cards uh, for the height. But I can experience envy when, when a pastor is praised for their preaching, or when their church seems to be very successful in, in their growth and in what they're doing in their ministry. Our envy tends to be targeted towards the people um, toward whom we might be inclined to compare ourselves, people maybe who have gifts or qualities that we pride ourselves in. So if you pride yourself in being attractive or being intelligent or being successful or wealthy, your, your, your envy tends to be directed towards somebody who outshines you in that particular quality. And that's why, by the way, if anybody ever says, just don't be envious, don't compare yourself, that's so petty, and, and it acts as if it's just something you can sort of just get rid of and move on from, it's not. Because this is actually something sometimes that can, that can get to the very core of our identity. And if somebody outshines you in the thing that you most pride yourself in, that you most derive your self-worth from, that can threaten your, your very sense of self. And, and so that's what envy is, feeling bitter when others have it better, particularly in those things in which we pride ourselves. So there's our definition. But then secondly, how do we recognize when envy is at work within our hearts? And this is a really important question to ask because, you know, there's a, there's a renowned psychiatrist. His name's Leslie Farber. He says, envy has a talent for disguise. Envy has a talent for disguise. All of the seven deadly sins are not always easy to recognize in our own hearts and selves, but that's particularly true of envy. Let me tell you why. Because as much as it might make you feel bad about yourself, or feel inferior when you see somebody outshining you in that particular gift or quality that you pride yourself in, how much worse does it make you feel about yourself to admit it? To publicly affirm and to say, I am envious of that person actually can, can kind of amplify that sense of inferiority unless you actually are, are transferring your identity to who you are in Jesus. That can make you feel worse. And so as a result, we do all sorts of things to keep our hearts from having to see and admit the envy that is within us. We try to hide from it and disguise it in a lot of different ways. 
So how do we know when we are responding out of envy, when envy seems to have a hold on our hearts? Let me give you four symptoms. Uh, first, first we're, we're often struggling with envy when we struggle to celebrate the successes of other people, particularly friends or family members, people who are close to us, when they succeed, do we struggle to celebrate their success? If you're single and you long to be married and your friend gets married, are you able to celebrate? Are you able to rejoice in that for them? Or or is all that it makes you feel this sense of, "I, I want that, I should have that, and you're upset from it? If a, if a coworker gets promoted and you think to yourself, right, that should be me. Why them and, and not me? I deserve that job just as much as they do. That's a good sign that you're responding from envy. You know, the book of Romans 12, 15 uh, says that love rejoices with those who rejoice and it weeps with those who weep. But envy does the exact opposite. It weeps with those who are rejoicing, and it rejoices when others are weeping. And that's the second symptom of envy, is that you know you're struggling with envy when you find yourself taking some delight, some satisfaction, some joy when when somebody else experiences a little bit of a downfall. When they get knocked down a peg, when they are criticized, when they're struggling, when they're going through some kind of hardship, um, you know, Frederick Buchner says that the definition of envy is this, this deep desire for everybody to be just as unsuccessful as you are, which, which I think, you know, if you want kind of a public example, we love those fall from grace stories, don't we? When celebrities whose lives seem to be better than ours, when they go through some kind of hardship, it makes us feel just a little bit better. Martha Stewart being dragged out in handcuffs for insider trading. I think people love that because it's like, okay, she's wealthier than me. Her house looks a lot better. It's a lot cleaner and better organized. And there's a sense of of satisfaction when, when we see somebody else in their downfall. That's a really good indicator symptom of envy. Here's a third one, um, frequent, frequent criticism of other people. Um, I, I would suggest maybe two-thirds of our criticism that comes out of our mouths uh, might be driven by envy. Um, I, I was thinking about this even in my, my own heart, my own life. Um, I was a part of this, this group of, of 20 pastors who went through this doctorate of ministry program, and, and, and some people... Um, at the end, were able to take their thesis that they put together and to publish it as a book. Um, and I, I had seen a couple of the folks, a couple of the pastors that had been in that program, they published books that actually sold um, a lot of copies. And I remember seeing um, one of the guys that he'd, he'd written this book on preaching, and it was like right at the top of this bestseller list on Amazon. And, and I saw that, and at first I thought, that's really cool. And then I started thinking to myself, well, you know, imagine how much he had to do like self-promotion and how he had to post about this. And I'm sure if you're going to get a book that's going to be that, you know, highly published, you probably have to really put yourself forward in a lot of ways. What was I doing? That, that was envy. That was a defense mechanism in my heart. It was a way to try to, you know, critique and explain, oh, well, he's only able to have this success because he's willing to do this thing that I wouldn't want to do. Friends, that's envy. When we devalue Um, Those things that we see in others that really are important to us. You know, when nerds criticize jocks for being dumb, 
Maybe, maybe they envy some of the athletic ability or when jocks criticize nerds you know, for getting good grades. They might envy their intelligence. We devalue. When we devalue the things that we really do care about in others, that's, that's envy. We do it in all sorts of little subtle ways, too. If somebody's like, hey, wasn't it awesome when so-and-so did this? And we say, yeah, it certainly exceeded my expectations. <laughs> or we say, you know, well, yeah, it, it certainly was very much improved. Or it was great, you know, considering the circumstances or considering where they're coming from. We find these little ways to just sort of diminish or devalue or, or critique to feel better about ourselves. Criticism. It's a really good symptom or indicator of envy. And then lastly, complaining, when we're always thinking to ourselves, you know, um, I deserve uh, to have this better life. I should be in that uh, job or that position by now. I should have that income by now. I should have that house, or I should be treated that way, or I should have had those outcomes, but I didn't for these reasons. That regular complaining, um, that too is a sign that we're struggling with envy. So you look at these symptoms um, of struggling to celebrate the successes of others, rejoicing uh, and taking satisfaction in the downfall of others, regular criticism or regular complaining, and maybe you say, okay, um, that's a little bit petty. It, it seems unkind, but is it really deadly? Is it really destructive uh, to be harboring and, and responding out of a heart sick with envy? And the answer is, is yes, and, and I think we see that in a couple of ways in this story. So, so look at Saul. You know, Saul is uh, someone who initially is pretty excited about David as this military commander, but eventually uh, he starts to feel these thoughts of envy and he feels insecure about his role as the king. He feels inferior because of David's successes. Um, but it grows, it escalates, doesn't it? eventually to the point where he has these, these murderous feelings towards David. He actually tries to pin him to the wall with a spear. He tries to kill him twice. And then much of the rest of the book of 1 Samuel is Saul pursuing David, trying to hunt him down and to kill him. He becomes obsessed with him. And you see the, the deadly, destructive power of envy. You know, that's one of the things we said about these seven deadly sins, is they're not necessarily the worst possible sins, are they? but they're the source vices from which all sorts of other uh, actions and sins grow. And eventually this envy, it, it, it escalates to the point even of almost murder. Now, how does that happen? How does that progression take place within Saul's psychology? You might've noticed in verse 10, it's a little bit of a strange phrase. We're told that an evil spirit from God came upon Saul. Did anybody notice that? An evil spirit came upon Saul. This is a phrase that you see in other places in the Old Testament. Here's what this means. Uh, with envy, actually with any of the seven deadly sins, initially you have a choice. Initially you have the choice of whether or not you're going to feed that envy. Whether you're going to choose to respond out of that envy. You are the one doing the envying. But here's what happens over time. The same is true with lust or wrath or any of these other seven deadly sins. When you continually choose to respond out of envy, what it does is it starts to form kind of a well-worn habitual path in your heart. That becomes your default response. And eventually, the more you respond in that way, you actually start to open yourself up to supernatural evil evil forces 
to where you go from you being the one who's doing the envying to the where you're actually the one uh, that, that the envying is being done to you. you. You've almost lost some of your control. And maybe that seems outrageous to some of you and say, evil supernatural forces, what are you talking about? I mean, think about somebody like Hitler. Right? You, you look at the Holocaust, you look at that level of human destruction, you say, where does that come from? How could somebody be capable of that? But you know, maybe it started with, with vain glory, with a sense of racial superiority. Or maybe even some envy of the Jewish people who, who seemed to have you know, greater financial means and, 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 and how Hitler envied that. Maybe it started there. And, and the more and more he responded out of envy, you open yourself up to these supernatural forces. An evil spirit came upon Saul to the point where he's ready to murder David. I actually saw this played out. Um, I think, to some degree, in the life of somebody I knew um, several months ago, who, who actually admitted, who said, yeah, I'm struggling with envy over this. And, and I know that's wrong, and I know I shouldn't be reacting over uh, this with envy. I know that's not godly, but, but the more that he responded in that way, uh, he, he ended up making some decisions that actually seemed pretty self-destructive and, 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 and reacting in ways where you thought, gosh, this just seems almost evil. Where is this coming from? And that's what happens over time as we give in to these seven deadly sins. You see it in Saul's life, and it can be destructive to other people. It certainly can be destructive to ourselves. Saul has no joy. He has no contentedness. He has no ability to, to, to appreciate the gifts that God has given him in his life as he's consumed with envy. You know, all the other seven deadly sins, they feel good at first, don't they? You know, gluttony or lust, even wrath to harbor, you know, getting back at somebody. It feels good at first, right? Envy is the only one of the seven deadly sins that never feels good. The more that you respond out of envy, the worse you feel about yourself. You know, John mentioned the principal at Lake Highlands Junior High, and he's talking about the issues with, with middle school students and social media. You know, you, you are at, uh, an eighth grader has a 27% greater risk of clinical depression if they regularly use social media because of the constant comparison, because of the way that feeds envy and, and feelings of inferiority and struggles with self-worth. Envy is destructive um, to those who respond out of it. There's a reason we talk about being sick with envy or green with envy, but it saps your motivation. It doesn't motivate you. There are some business school professors that say, yeah, envy is a good drive for competition. It's not. Because it, when, you're, when you're feeling envy, what you do is you look at somebody else and you say, yeah, I could be as successful as them or I could, I could get ahead like that if I were willing to cut those corners or if I were willing to do those things or if I would put in the effort, but you don't. It takes away your sense of motivation. It leads almost to a sense of fatalism where you say, look, I've just been dealt a bad hand. The deck has been stacked against me. That's why my life is not like those other folks. It removes your motivation. It steals your joy. It's deadly. It's destructive. So what do we do about it? How can we uproot the envy in our hearts when we detect and see it? And you know, there are a few practical strategies for that. But one is to try to celebrate um, the blessings and the successes of the people to whom you would be prone to compare yourself. Shoot them a note, shoot them a text. When they, when they have a blessing, when they have a success, say, hey, that's awesome, that's wonderful for you. It's just a great practice. I got to be the recipient of that in some ways on behalf of our church from, from some of the other pastors 
uh, in this Lake Highlands neighborhood. I mean, what a great picture of, of this, this envy-defying love. So the pastor at Lake Highlands Methodist Church down the street or the pastor of Lake Highlands Baptist in Old Lake Highlands or the pastor of Eastside um, that just merged with Schofield over on Abrams, they each have reached out in different ways to say, hey, we are glad your church is here. We praise God for what God is doing in your midst. We do not see you as rivals. We are pursuing the same kingdom of God. There are more than enough people among the 100,000 Folks who live in Lake Highlands who do not know Jesus, do not have a church home, we're not in competition. If we can do something to serve together, let us know. I thought, wow, that's amazing. So celebrating the successes of the people that you might be inclined to see as competitors or rivals, here's a second strategy, is to give thanks. Make it an actual practice of gratitude in your life for every one thing you're going to ask God for that you want more of. Praise him and thank him for seven good things that he's already given you. Here's a third thing. Maybe some of you want, like those middle school students, to just maybe, maybe you need to take a break from social media for the season of Lent. And you're just going to kind of give up Instagram and Facebook for a couple of months because you see the way that it feeds that constant competitive comparison. But ultimately, if you're going to uproot envy from your heart, you've got to be able to really approach it and deal with it at the heart level. So what what does that look like? I think we see the way forward in this guy named Jonathan. The beginning of the passage, here's what we are told. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan, that is Saul's son, was knit to the soul of David. Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him. And he gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now here's what the narrator is doing in 1 Samuel 18. He's presenting before us two people who are responding to the very same reality. Saul and Jonathan. They both see that God's hand is on David. They both see that God has anointed David. They both see that at some point, David is likely going to become the king, the ruler over all of Israel. They both are seeing the same reality. And by the way, they both have a lot to lose from it. And if David becomes king, Saul is no longer king. But actually, Jonathan has more to lose because he's the heir. He's supposed to be the successor to the throne. At least Saul got to be king for a little while. If David becomes king, Jonathan never gets to be king. So they're seeing the same reality. They both have a lot to lose from it, but they respond very differently, don't they? You know, Saul responds out of envy. Jonathan, what does he do? He takes off his robe. That's the symbol of his crown rights, the symbol of his royalty. He takes off his robe. He gives that to David. He takes off his sword. He makes himself vulnerable. He gives that to David. Now, why is this significant? How does, how does what Jonathan does here show us how we can uproot our envy from our hearts? Let me, let me tell you in two ways. First, because we see in the way that Jonathan relates to David, we see what should be our attitude toward Jesus. Just, just think, about, think about this. You and I are not on the throne, are we? We're not on the throne. Jonathan gets off the throne. He says, I'm not supposed to be king. David, you're supposed to be king. You get to be on the throne, not me. Friends, you'll never uproot envy out of your heart until you're willing to say that to Jesus and say, you know what, Jesus? I'm not king. That means I don't get to decide how your blessings and resources and gifts are going to be dispensed. You're the king. You get to decide. 
how to dispense those things, not me. So first, we need our attitude toward Jesus to be Jonathan's towards David, to say, Jesus, you get to be the king. I'm getting off the throne. And then the second thing that we need to see is, is, is not just what is Jonathan's attitude toward David, but we need to see how in many ways what we see in Jonathan's attitude toward David is actually Jesus' attitude toward us. Think about it. Right? Jonathan gives up the robe. He gives up the sword makes himself vulnerable. What did Jesus do for us? He gave up his royal robe, didn't he? Gave up his place in heaven. He gave up his throne. He made himself vulnerable. He took on our flesh. He made himself vulnerable to be attacked, to be arrested, to be beaten, to be mocked. Jesus actually allowed the sword of God's judgment to go right through his heart for us on the cross. Why did he do that? Because of his love for us, because of his delight in us, because he longed to cover us in the robes of his righteousness, to forgive us, to adopt us as God's children, to bring us to sit with him on his throne, to get to reign with him and share in his inheritance for all eternity future. Envy resents it when it thinks that somebody is getting something they don't deserve. Jesus loves to give people what they don't deserve. Jesus delights to give us what we do not deserve. Friends, do you know that? Do you believe that to be true for you, that Jesus delights to give you his righteousness, to allow you to reign with him, to share in his eternal inheritance? He delights to give you what you do not deserve. And sure, if you believe that, there may be moments when you look and say, hey, how come somebody else is getting that? They don't deserve that. I should get that. But when you go back to the gospel and you believe and you remember and you trust and you think to yourself, hang on a sec, I don't deserve anything. And yet Jesus, look at what he's given to me. Grace upon grace upon grace. And even the very thing that I might be envying that that other person has, it does not even begin to compare to the inheritance, to the glorious future that Jesus has secured for me. Friends, let's trust that. Let's believe that together, that God would begin to uproot that envy in our hearts so that we could experience the joy and contentment and gratitude that God wants for us in Christ. Let's pray as we come to the Lord's table.